My name is Rick. I am the executive pastor here at Grace, and Pastor Mike is actually preaching this morning at our Oviedo campus. And so I have a privilege of preaching a few times a year, so today is one of those days. And we're going to be continuing our Advent series, looking at this topic of I Am Certain, as we have walked through the Christmas story. And so over the last few weeks, we have been talking about how do we gain certainty in our lives, and specifically, how do we gain certainty in our spiritual lives? And as we look around the world over the last two years, I think there have been two camps of people that have evolved out of that. One are people that are uncertain of anything. I was talking to somebody last week, and they're like, I feel like everything that I used to know is true. I'm not even certain it's true anymore. It just feels like the ground is unraveling beneath me, um, and it's just all different and all new. Uh, and there's some of you that are just 100% certain that you are exactly right now, and everybody else in the world is just dumb, right? Like, you got it figured out, and you are certain, all right? And as Pastor Mike talked last week, maybe your certainty is in the wrong thing. And so what we're asking is, how do we find certainty in our spiritual lives, and how do we invest in the right things? And so Pastor Mike has been unfolding this principle that certainty is built by investing in the right things. And so certainty is built by investing in the right things. And what I love about this statement is that as you are investing in the right things, there is an activity that is called, like we're actively called to participate in this. Like you don't just wake up tomorrow certain, you wake up certain because you've invested in the right things over time. And so certainty is something that you are building. And so if you're looking at your life right now and you're saying, you know what, there's some things in my life that I'm uncertain about, this tells me that there's hope because I can change the things that I'm investing in. And as I do, my certainty will continue to grow. And so if I'm doing something right now that's creating uncertainty, I stop doing that, start doing new things, and that will actually build certainty into my life. And as I looked at that this week, I realized the opposite of this statement is also true, that if certainty is built by investing in the right things, then uncertainty is built by investing in the wrong things. And so you look at the things that you're investing in, and if you are uncertain, you can probably look around and say, man, I'm uncertain because there's these things that I have invested my life in that are not producing certainty. They're actually producing anxiety. They're producing fear. They're producing struggle. And so just thinking about this, take the spiritual aside. If you just think about like investments, for instance, how many of you ever made a risky investment before? Maybe you like bought Bitcoin in 2012 and like every day you woke up and like, hey, what's the price of this coin today? You know, but let me tell you what, if you picked up Bitcoin for less than $600 a coin, you have complete certainty today, right? You woke up this morning, like that $600 is now 48, 49, 50, $52,000. Like, you're not struggling. You know, like one coin went from 600 to 52,000 in the course of five years. Great investment. It's not like you bought Doge, right? You're not going like, oh, are we going to crest 27 cents or not? I don't know. Uh, you have uncertainty because you've invested in the right thing. 2012, it was risky. Now it's not risky anymore. How do you invested in a, maybe a risky relationship? Every service, people like chuckle under their breath. Um, they're the guilty ones, right? Uh, and you're like, I see five other women crying in the background, but mom, he's different. I'm going to change him. Like, I'm going I'm to tame him. He's, gonna, he, he's so amazing. He's got these good qualities. I just need to, to clean him up a little bit, right? Uh, but give me your iPhone because I want to see who you're talking to, right? Because you don't have certainty in that relationship. And so as a result, you don't feel confident. You don't feel secure. You feel anxiety and panic and what's going on. Maybe you've invested in the wrong career, the wrong company, the wrong team, the wrong boss, right? Pastor Mike is a great boss. I love working with him. Not just saying this for the camera. I've been here for 12 years now, all right? If he wasn't great, I'd be gone, all right? But he's not. I love working with Pastor Mike. People are like, hey, when are you going to go somewhere else, do something else? I'm like, never. I'm going to retire here. That is my life goal, right? Live a boring life and retire at grace. Um, 
It's what I want to do with my life. But I have had other bosses that I would walk in, and I didn't know if I was going to get the happy guy or the angry guy or the rage guy. I didn't know if he was going to tell me I was doing an amazing job or if he was going to tell me that everything I was doing was wrong and not as he wanted, even though he never told me what he wanted. You know, like, so you just have these moments where you're, you're anxious in those moments. There's uncertainty in those moments. And so we have to begin looking at our lives and saying, if there is uncertainty, then what am I focusing on and what am I investing in? Because if you're not focusing on the right things and investing in the right things, then you will naturally have uncertainty. And it's not a result of everything happening around you. It's a result of where you're putting your focus and what you're investing in. And so if you are investing in a continual news cycle, their whole goal is to create anxiety in your heart. That's why you're anxious. That's why you're uncertain. It's not because the world is falling apart. It's because you are consuming the wrong things, investing in the wrong things, focusing on the wrong things. And so as we look at and we ask the question in the Advent, he's like, how can we build certainty in our spiritual lives? What are the things that we can do to create certainty in our spiritual lives? How can we create certainty in the eternal things? How can we make sure we're investing in the right places? And so that is what we want to talk about throughout this Christmas season, helping you find certainty in Christ's church through his word. Because there are some things that are eternal and there are some things worthy of investment. I guess it is the church of God. It is the church and the things of God. And so as we invest in those, we become much more certain people, much more stable people, much more secure people. Now, in a room this size, there are some of you that maybe you're new to faith. And so as we approach the Christmas stories, here's what I think happens sometimes. There's people that it's new and it's exciting and it's fresh. They're not really familiar with it. Um, and even if you're new to faith, you may be slightly familiar with it. You've seen the peanut special or something like that. So you've seen the story told, Linus in the blanket, and he reads the Christmas story or something. Like culturally, you're understanding Christmas is the birth of Christ and Christmas trees and presents and Santa and all that. And it's kind of all wrapped up in one. Maybe you're here and you have been in the church forever. And so when you approach these Christmas texts, you're like, I already got all that. I already, I already figured that out. You know, Pastor Mike has told his story about coming to faith as a late teen uh, and his whole life being transformed. I have the opposite story. I think I was born in the church just about. And then we spent like five nights a week there until I was 18. Um, and then I was like, I'm going to college now. Thanks. All right. Um, and so like, I remember like being this big and we all gathered together at my great grandma's house and we would read the Christmas story and then we would sing happy birthday to Jesus and all that had to take place before I got my presents and I wanted my presents, right? So, so I just remember being like indoctrinated with these things and I don't mean indoctrinated in a bad way, but I just mean I, I sometimes come to the texts with the assumptions that I have it all figured out. Or like, yeah, Caesar was king, and then there was Augustus, and then those days, they were supposed to be taxed. Mary was supposed to have a baby, but the angel came, and she's like, I can't because I'm a virgin. And he's like, hey, it's okay. God did this. Joseph, get on board, right? Like, they go to Bethlehem. There is no room. Hey, we got a stable. Put them in the feeding trough. The angels come. The shepherds come. And then the wise men come, and then it's over, right? Like, and so, like, I know it all. I, like, what, is there, what, what else is there to learn about the Christmas story? And so when I approached the text this week, I thought, man, I've got to preach. The thing I love about the Bible is it never changes, but because I am always changing and my circumstances are always changing, there's always something new to learn in the scriptures. There's always something that as I approach the scriptures, it is the same year after year after year, century after century, millennia after millennia, the word of God is unfailing and unchanging. But because I am changing and because the word of God is sharp and active and piercing to the soul and the Holy Spirit applies the words, the truth of God that is unchanging comes to me in a new and a fresh way. And comes to you in a new and a fresh way. And so when I look at the story, I think, well, what is the unexpected thing? Because one of the things that happens in the scripture is it is full of surprises, twists and turns, things you're not expecting. And usually in your life and in the scriptures, 
it's in those unexpected moments that God shows up in some unique ways. God generally does not paint the story of our life or write the story of our life in the way that we think that he's going to. And it's usually in those twists and turns and those moments of unexpected space that God shows up and has the greatest capacity to do something not only unexpected, but to use our story in a greater way. And so when we think about our lives, unexpected events are not usually good things. They're just not. And I know the commercials right now, like surprises are wonderful. You're going to walk out Christmas morning and there's a Lexus with a bow on it. And I'm like, how did that get there? Who got the bow? How did he buy a Lexus and she not know it? I mean, like, like, like all of those questions. But usually the surprises in our life are not Lexuses in the driveway. They're test results that we didn't want to hear. They're layoffs that we weren't seeing or seeing coming. They're a call on a Tuesday afternoon that just obliterates everything that you thought was stable and good. Like those are the unexpected moments. And and in those moments, God shows up in some unique ways. And and I want you to see this truth. God often works in the places and the ways we least expect. God often works in the places and the ways that we least expect. And when we read the Christmas story, man, it is so full of unexpected moments. Again, just last week, the angel shows up to Mary and says, you're going to give birth. A virgin is going to give birth. Unexpected moment. Even Mary was like, Gabriel, that's not how this works. Like, I I can't be pregnant. And he's like, no, this is of the Lord. Like, then to think about, like, the Messiah, right? That's a word, Messiah. We hear it. What does it mean? It means that the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, the one who created the universe, inhabits a fetus, is born of a woman, and enters into humanity. No one should have seen that coming. That's completely unexpected. That God would inhabit humanity and come to us. And that when he does come, no one would pay attention. He literally is laid in a feeding trough because there's no space, there's no room. The only people that show up are some shepherds, and they only show up because the angels came and said, hey, the Messiah has come, go worship him. And so there's all of these unexpected moments. I read the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And in the first century, women, in best case, were second-class citizens. In worst case, were property. And yet Matthew, a Jewish man, sees fit to mention four women in the genealogy of Jesus. Those are unexpected moments. And so I read, I'm like, well, who are these women? Well, there's Tamar, there's Rahab, there's Ruth, and there's Mary. And if you read the biographies of these women, they are not like wonderful, godly women. They're people that God ushers into the family of God. You have Rahab. Who is Rahab? Rahab is the prostitute in Jericho. That when the spies come, she hides them and she says, I want to be with your people. I don't want to be here anymore. And God not only brings her into the family of God, he brings her into the line of Jesus. Completely unexpected. Ruth, who is she? She is a Moabitess. She is one of God's enemies. The only reason she gets brought into the story is because her father-in-law and his sons lacked faith. And they left the people of God. And they went to Moab in hopes of finding a better life. And after they die, she returns with her mother-in-law, Naomi, to the people of God. And there's this beautiful moment when they're on their way back. And Naomi says, Ruth, what are you doing? I have nothing to offer you. Go back and be with your people. And she says these lies that are now famous. She says, Naomi, where you go, I will go. And where you lie, I will lie. And your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. And then she becomes the grandmother of King David. 
because she takes the step of faith and she moves into the people. And so God shows up in these unexpected ways. And as I'm reading in Matthew chapter 2, I'm like, where is God going to show up in this unexpected moment today? And so I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at this whole chapter, but really I'm just going to read verses 1 through 12. uh, And then we will just talk through some of the other pieces. But I want you to hear this story. And again, I think this is probably a story that most of you have heard at some point. And the scripture says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and so the timeline now is some point after Jesus was born. It's not immediately after, how long, we're not sure, but it's sometime after his birth. During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and he said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And they heard the king, and they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route." So I read this story, and I think these are characters, and I, I, in my mind at least, have some idea who they are. So the first is King Herod. Now, I will tell you that when I was growing up, I always thought Herod was a Roman guy because he was in a Roman kingdom and therefore placed as king over the Jews, but he was Roman. Uh, in my studies, I realized he's, not, he, he's a Jewish guy. So Herod is a Jewish man who should have known about the Messiah, who had been entrusted with all of the Old Testament, the prophecies, the law, He should have known who the Messiah was, where the Messiah was coming from, and he's now placed in this position of authority and power. And so my assumption is if you're a Jewish man who's trusted by the Roman government and put into a place of authority and leadership, perhaps you would use that authority and that leadership and that influence to help your people. But it seems Herod here is really interested in helping Herod. He's not really interested in helping the people beneath him. He's really interested in elevating himself and using his authority and his power for self-preservation and self-protection. And then we have these religious leaders. And so when the the Magi come and they they say, hey, where is this king? He gathers together the chief priest, the teachers of the law. These are the scholars of the day. These are the people who are the most educated and learned people. And they have studied the Old Testament. They have studied the law. They have studied the words of God from antiquity, from all of their people. They are so familiar with it that when Herod gathers them together and he says, where is the Messiah to be born? They don't go back and say, let's get back to you with that. They just immediately say, well, in Bethlehem. And then they begin to quote the prophecies to him. Because it's been said that in you, Judah, you are not least of these, that out of you will come. And so, interesting, Herod is a Jewish man who doesn't even know where the Messiah is going to be born. The chief priest, the law, the leaders of the law, the teachers of the law, they know where the Messiah is to be born, but they're not looking for him. Like, he's already born in Bethlehem, and they have no clue. So they have all of the right information, but they've never said, well, when is he going to be born? Or maybe we should go look for him. And so you have these, then the Magi. Well, who are the Magi? They are the unexpected characters in the story. 
They are completely unexpected. And so magi, what does it sound like? It sounds like magician because it's from the same word. All right, so this is a Greek word that means magician, astrologer, interpreter of dreams. And when you think of astrologists and magicians, you automatically think good, godly people, full of wisdom, right? <laughs> right? I use the illustration of Chris Angel, which means I'm just getting old. If you guys don't know who Chris Angel is, I'm sorry. If you're born after 1990, you're clueless. But uh, he's like this magician in Las Vegas, and he does all the street magic and does these amazing things. So he's not somebody that, if he came to grace, he'd be like, hey, here's a microphone. Why don't you instruct all of our people on how to live their lives, right? So, so these are the guys that no one expected. In fact, every other time these people are mentioned in the Old and New Testament, they're mentioned with skepticism. They're mentioned with warning. They're mentioned with, these are people not to be trusted, um, you see them in the Old Testament appear when Israel has interactions with pagan countries, pagan just meaning not Christian or not the people of God. So when Moses confronts Pharaoh, uh, do you remember he does these 10 miraculous things or God does these 10 miraculous things through him and Pharaoh gathers his magicians, his astrologers, his magi together and he says, oh, we can do these things too. And so one of them turns their staff into a snake and also, it just confused me because I'm like, why are you bringing more calamity upon yourself? You know, oh, we can do this. We can do this too. Um, but, but that's what happens. You see these things where um, Daniel is in exile with the people of God, and the king has these dreams, and he gathers together his magi, his magicians, his astrologers, to interpret his dreams, and they're unable to. And then Daniel comes in and interprets the dream. And so there's always this skepticism around the Magi. And if you were a Jewish person in the first century reading this text, and Matthew is a Jewish man writing to a Jewish audience to help them understand that Jesus was the Messiah, you have to ask the question, why does he include the Magi in the story? If they're immediately going to put a red flag up, immediately cause you to think, why are these guys here? We can't trust these guys. But I think the most plausible reason for why they're here is because they showed up and asked the question. Like, like it's just part of the story. It's, it's telling what actually happened. And so it actually speaks to the truth of the story because he would have no other reason to include these people in the story. But God shows up and works in unexpected ways. And as I read the story, what happens is the Magi not only show up, they're not only unexpected, but man, they are the people that demonstrate the greatest faith and demonstrate the things of God. You know, at Grace, we talk about big-hearted generosity as one of our house rules. And we define that as we prioritize giving to God's work over protecting ourselves. And I look at the Magi, and I think, man, they, if anybody in this story demonstrates big-hearted generosity, it is the Magi. Where are they from? Somewhere in the east. They make a journey to Jerusalem. Who paid for the journey? They paid for the journey. They get there. They go where? To the palace. Why? Because they were assuming a king was born. And so where do kings, where are they born? In palaces. So he goes up to the, like, hey, where is the king that's been born? But they've brought with them gifts to give the king. Gifts of worship. And so they demonstrate this. We want to be a part of whatever is going on, this, this work of God. We want to be a part of it. And we're going to invest our lives in it at risk of life, at risk of fortune, to go be a part of that. Who are the Magi? I think when I thought of them before, they're like, the three guys with the camels and the nativity set, right? And we just stick them over to the side because they come after the birth. So you got like the manger and the stable and all that here, and then you got the, the, the wise men over there, right? There's three of them. Why? Well, there's three gifts, so we just say there's three of them. There may have been 20 of them. There may have been, there's more than one because it says men. So there was at least two, right? How many of them? We don't know. But, but they make this long journey. They invest in understanding. And you say, well, how does this even happen? Like they saw a star. 
I've seen lots of stars. I never decided to go to another place and look for a king. But you hear what happened. So these are men who are learned, educated men from another place. And they are studying the stars because that is what learned, educated people in that day did. They studied the stars. And you say, well, there's some superstition there. Sure, there is. There's some superstition there, but there's also the studying of stars. And when things move in the heavens, people notice. Now, if you go outside and look up at Orlando, it's not spectacular because there's lots of light. If you go to the top of a mountain out west and look up, it's astonishing. Like, the whole Milky Way is there. You can see shooting stars and all of these things. And there can be subtle shifts in the stars that if you look over time, you start to notice. In fact, I was on Park Avenue with my kids the other night for the Bach concert. And my son looked up and he's like, oh, is that a planet or a star or a comet? And I said, that's a plane. (laughs) And... He's like, no, that's a star or a planet. I think it's a planet. I think maybe it's a comet. I think it's a planet. And so we had this debate, and I'm like, it's a plane. And then like 20 minutes later, it was still there, and I'm like, I think it's a planet. Um, <laughs> I think it's a planet, probably. Maybe it's Saturn and Venus come together. I don't know. But, but, but even my 10-year-old looks up, and he's like, hey, that thing is different than it normally is. And so these astrologers who are studying the skies see something different. And you can go back and look. And historians have tried to say, well, what year did this happen in? And what was going on in the cosmos? And we can literally trace them back. You know, at one point, I think 7 BC, four different times, Saturn and Venus had this conjunction. And it would look like this really bright star. And it would have been the right place. And so maybe that was it. Maybe it was a comet. We don't know what it was. But we know there was something in the cosmos that caught their attention. We also know that Ancient historians have all recorded that during this time, there was a rumor going around that there was a king to be born in Jerusalem. And so there was a rumor, there's going to be a king, and there's a shifting of the stars. And then also, when Julius Caesar died prior to this, for seven days, there was a comet that was visible after his burial. And that was wonderful for the astrology business. Like, wonderful. Because now everyone said, hey, when a king dies or a king's born, something shifts in the stars and we can find these things. And so they were searching the stars. And so there's plausible reason for why. There's this rumor. There's going to be a king born. There's a shift in the stars. So they make the voyage to Jerusalem. They act in their faith. And, and do you know that one of the truths of Christianity is that walking with God is a continual increase of both knowledge and faith? Like walking with God is a continual increase of knowledge and faith. This is what we do. Like just to become a Christian, what happens? You receive a certain amount of knowledge and information. I have sin. Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid the penalty of that sin so that I could be made right with God. Jesus rose from the dead, and in his death, he conquered death, hell, and sin, and now he extends life and forgiveness to me. And that information meets faith in your heart, and a transformation occurs that awakens you to something you didn't know prior to that moment. And then the rest of your Christian life is the learning of knowledge, and then the decision of do I act in faith or disbelief based on the knowledge I've received. Faith and disbelief, faith or disbelief. And so here's what's happening. How many of you know right now, like there's something in your life you could either start doing today or stop doing today that would automatically improve your life, right? Maybe it's like I could go for a 30-minute walk every day. I could stop eating six dozen donuts every morning. That's my issue. Like, like you have all of these things that like faith, knowledge, faith, knowledge. And here's the reality. All of us know more than we actually are doing. Like every single person in the room knows there's things I could start doing or stop doing that would improve my life. And so you have this knowledge that you've not yet acted upon. But what happens is when we do act in faith and we do respond to the knowledge, generally what happens, we call it taking our next step toward Christ. God then gives us more knowledge and our faith continues to grow. And so does this march of faith, knowledge, faith, knowledge, faith, knowledge. And so here's truth. Your 
practice behavior faith will never catch up to your knowledge. You will always know more than you actually do. So increase your practice and at the same time increase your knowledge. And spend your whole Christian life chasing the knowledge of God that you've, you've, you've just learned. And what we see with the Magi is just that. They look in the sky and they see there's something going on and then they put act, active faith to it. We're going to organize a journey to Jerusalem. We're going to gather up and make this trek. And they, in faith, go to Jerusalem. Now, what happens when they get to Jerusalem is they ask the question, where is the king? And now, instead of getting information from the stars, they're getting information from the scriptures. And so the priests say, in Bethlehem. So they've narrowed it down from this region to now it's in this town. And it's through the word of God that they receive that information. And now they have another choice. Do I, we act in faith and do we take the next leg of the journey or do we act in disbelief and say, well, we're not sure about these scriptures. We don't know who you are. Why would you? No, they act in faith. And so they make a journey then to Bethlehem. Then they search through Bethlehem until they find the home where Jesus lives. And then they present gifts of worship to him. And then what's fascinating is after this, God speaks to them personally. And says, don't go back to Herod. Don't go report to the king. Leave another way. And even that was risk of life. If they had been caught disobeying the king, do you think Herod would have spared their lives? Absolutely not. And so they are trusting God. They're acting in faith. They are, they are living out big-hearted generosity, prioritizing giving to God's work over protecting themselves. And they go on this journey. And I just love, as I've reached, I'm like, man, these guys are amazing. And they show us this other truth that we must act on the truth we possess before new truth is revealed. We must act on the truth we possess before greater truth is revealed. And so if you're stagnant in your faith, maybe you need to look and say, well, what, what can I do? Like, what do I already know that I can employ and start doing to increase certainty in my life? Maybe as I start reading a little bit of scripture every day, maybe as I start, you know, what is the thing that I'm going to do? What are the changes that I can make that I already know and that as I do that, God's going to reveal greater truth to you. Now, when I think about the Magi, I am astonished. These are people who didn't know the story of God, who make this long journey to get and become part of the people of God, who respond in faith. And I love, verse 10 says that they are, when they see the star and they meet Jesus, it says they are overflowing with joy. And how many of you have these moments where you have faith and then you see the reality of your faith. Like, I'm going to trust this thing and believe in this thing. It's not already there. It's, it, faith is there because we don't, like, it's not yet there. Faith is believing something's going to happen. And so the, the, the Magi believed in faith that if they made this journey, they were going to find this king. And when they do, they are overflowing with joy. And this is how God works. As we practice faith, we're overflowing with joy. And so when I look at the Magi, I am astonished. And I tell you, when I look at Herod, I was equally astonished. Again, Herod is a Jewish king who I'm expecting to use his influence and power to bless the Jewish people. All right, as king, here's what he could have done. He could have said, hey, let's find the Messiah. Let's elevate the Messiah. Let's, let's usher in this new kingdom of God for Israel. But interesting, also because I thought he was Roman, also because I was like, well, because he's Roman and these guys showed up looking for a king, it makes sense that he just was like, wipe all the children out. Because it's just a king that's a threat to his throne. But what actually happens, the Magi show up and say, where is the king who's born king of the Jews? And look what Herod says in verse 4. When Herod had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. 
So Herod makes the leap. These men show up and say, where is the king of the Jews? And Herod, in his mind, says, the king of the Jews is the Messiah. And so he then says, hey, find him so that I can go worship him as well. But in verse 16, here's what happens. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And so the text says that while the Magi overflowed with joy, their faith overflowed with joy, Herod is overflowing with rage. His fear creates uncertainty in his heart, and that uncertainty turns to rage, and it is overflowing with rage. And so you have these two people. You have these people that are acting in faith, and they are overflowing with joy as their culmination of their faith is realized. And you have this man acting in fear and uncertainty, and the overflowing of his heart is rage. It says he was furious, overflowing with rage, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Astonishing to me that Herod, as a Jewish man, hearing of the Messiah, his impulse is not to worship, his impulse is not to help, his impulse is to kill the Messiah. Like, this is the one that had been prophesied for thousands of years. This was the great hope of Israel, that one day the Messiah will come, one day he will rescue his people. This is what Zephaniah calls him, a light to the nations, a blessing to the world. And Herod, in an effort to protect himself, says, wipe out the Messiah, and with him, everyone under two to make sure that we get him. It's astonishing that someone could suppress the truth of God and go to such great lengths. Why? Not to prioritize giving to God's work over protecting himself, but to prioritize protecting himself over giving to God's work. And as he prioritizes himself, he then acts in any way possible to bring destruction to what God is doing. What's fascinating is he protects his kingdom. Do you know if he had just recognized the Messiah? Jesus was not a threat to his kingdom. Jesus, had, Jesus didn't want the Roman kingdom. He's like, I'm king of kings. Like he, he doesn't have any interest in taking Herod's position from him. And you know, Herod's kingdom didn't last very long. It's not a few years later, Herod's dead, buried, gone. He's got a son that reigns for a little while, and then he's gone. And so when we grasp onto things in an effort to keep them, even suppressing truth, suppressing God's call, suppressing the promises of God, what happens is not that that thing gives joy, it's that that thing creates fear, that thing creates uncertainty, that thing creates rage, that thing is ultimately lost. And as I read this text, I think, man, that's astonishing, but I, I just stopped and thought, man, where in my life is there this unexpected moment, perhaps, and I'm holding on to something so tightly that God is saying, hey, Rick, that's, let go of that. It's not good for you. Where am I suppressing the truth of God? Where am I suppressing the promises of God? Where am I denying the promises of God so that I can hold on to something that I value more than God? And that's really what we see Herod doing here. He's holding on to something, his kingship, and in doing so, he's losing everything. And if we circle back to the question, well, how can we build certainty in our spiritual lives? Can I tell you the story that God is writing for you is better than the story you're writing for yourself? The story God is writing is better than the story you're writing for yourself. I know you think you've got it all figured out. I like to plan. I like a good five to 10 year plan. Let's, you know, I always tell God, like, just give me the Roman numerals. I don't need the details, but like just one, two, three, four, five, right? And it never works like that. The story I wrote for myself was to move to Orlando and start a church. It had nothing to do with grace. 
And God brings us into this family of grace, and God lets us do something more amazing than anything we could have hoped. Like, God always is writing a better story than I'm writing for myself, but every time I come to these crossroads of like, am I going to trust God in faith, or am I going to hold on to something in fear? And when I hold on to things in fear, I miss out on God's best. And when I respond to God in faith and let go of those things, he usually gives them back in greater abundance. It's just how he works. And as we think about where do we invest our lives, let me just tell you where you invest your life. The church is where you invest your life. Like the church is the hope of the world. Jesus came for a mission. His mission was to save sinners. And then once you are saved, you are brought into a family, into a community, into a church. I think it was Henry Blackaby that said, if you want to invest in the work of God, find where God is working and join him in that work. Find where God is working and join him in that work. And I just want to tell you, like, God is doing an amazing work at Grace Church right now. We hear story after story, people after people saying, hey, here's how my life has been transformed. Here's how my marriage has been renewed. Here's how I found hope for my kids. Here's where, like, it just happens over and over and over again. And guys, this book that we put together is 80 pages of what? It's 80 pages of story so that you can be certain that God is at work. It's 80 pages of how God is working in this church and through you as his people. And some of you didn't expect to be here. Like some of you were like, if you told me this time last year I was going to be in a church, I'd have been like, you're crazy. But here you are. Some of you had been in another church for a long time. You're like, I'm never leaving this church. And yet, here you are. And God is doing something unexpected. And the whole purpose of this book is to show you where God is working and invite you to be a part of joining us in that. You know, I compile all these stats because I like spreadsheets and I'm a nerd. And I literally, at the end of every year, we do this and I get done. And I'm like, I can't even believe what God has done. Like, I can't believe the number of people who raised their hand or looked up and said, I want to cross the line. I want to become a Christian. The number of kids that have been baptized. And so as we look at the things we're investing in, I want to call you to be investing in the church with all of your life. Herod was all in. I mean, Herod was like all in. Slay every two-year-old and blow. Like, that is all in. What are you holding back from God? The guy's saying, just be all in. Invest with his church. Trust God that he will work the details out and it will work out. And when I look at the Christmas offering, I think, man, this is exciting, not because it's big numbers. It's exciting because it's your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers who are meeting Jesus. It's exciting because this, this teaching and healing, as we teach truth, people find healing from brokenness, from sin, from their past, that is actually happening. It's exciting when I think about expanding the counseling center. We just hired our 10th therapist this week to see that counseling center expand because we are just running out of space and running out of room to meet the need that is there. When I think about having facilities in Oviedo and Winter Garden that allow us to have Bible study space and counseling space so we can expand the ministry there to reach more people and help more people take their next steps toward Christ, that's exciting. When I read about Commission 127 and us coming alongside foster families to support them in the work that they do, is there are children in our church right now that have been adopted into families of grace because Commission 127 came alongside them? And I think, man, what a beautiful picture of God's work. Like, these are the Ruths and the Rahabs, the kids that maybe were not part of God's family, that had no hope. And God's like, hey, I'm going to bring you into this family. And their whole trajectory of their life has now changed because you as a people, as a church, have come alongside individuals to say, we can help you. And we can help you take your next step toward Christ. And so I want to challenge you, invest your life in the right things. Invest your life in eternal things. Invest your life in Christ's church. It is the mission of Christ. It is the reason that he came. And God is working here. God is working here in amazing ways. And we want you to be a part of that. Let's pray together. 
God, we are grateful that you are at work in our lives. We're grateful for the stories that we hear of transformation. And God, we're grateful for your scriptures that tell us the story of people in the past who acted in faith and whose faith was rewarded. And also, God, people who acted in fear and who only brought destruction to themselves and others. And so, God, we pray that we would be people who act in faith when we're presented with truth, that we'd be people who invest in the eternal things of God through this church. God, that we would be all in with you and with your mission. And ultimately, God, we pray that Orlando would be a different city because Grace Church exists. Father, we love you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.